after the presentation of chapter 5 follows now chapter 6 entitled dhyana yoga or the philosophy of meditation continuing his discourse on atma gyana or the knowledge of the self krishna says to arjuna i am now going to tell you something about attitudes and the regulation of the mind people use the word mind control but i prefer the term self regulation as the word control worries many people especially when the mind is involved let me start with attitudes first going back to the karma yogi let us ask what precisely should be his mental attitude a true karma yogi should never be concerned about the outcome of his doings nor aspire for the fruit of action totally focused on doing his duty he should always have the feeling that it is the lord's work that he is doing on the worldly plane he might actually have a boss who is giving the orders he might also get a salary but for him all those are purely incidental arjuna asks krishna does that mean he ignores his boss and does what he thinks is his duty krishna replies how can that be there is a king and he gives an order to his minister the minister has to obey as long as the order is in conformity with dharma of course the king plays a role in god's drama and so does the minister yet while doing his duty to the state the minister quietly says lord i am doing this for your pleasure there is nothing to prevent the minister from silently offering his work to god nor is it in conflict with his duty to continue the true karma yogi has no craving for success nor does he become depressed when there is a failure he accepts both success and failure with perfect equanimity never a castroil face for him he always says it is all the lord's will in god's play there is never any failure and everything happens the way it is supposed to i am merely his instrument since there is no hankering after success and all that there is detachment and a spirit of renunciation in the karma yogi so you see you do not have to wear ochre robes to renounce he alone is a true renunciate who has given up attachment and desires and not the one who wears saffron colored robes and is called a sanyasi in other words it is not the dress but the mental attitude that is important a sanyasi who is worried where his next meal is going to come from is no sanyasi at all on the other hand i would give full marks to a karma yogi if he follows the principle of karma phala tyagam or giving up the desire for the fruit of action arjuna you must carefully note the spirit in which i am using the word sacrifice you know about yagnyas don't you the sacred fire in the yagna to which offerings are made 
is also called the sacrificial fire. What I am trying to drive at is that sacrifice and offering are the same things. In a yajna, a material object is offered to the physical fire. A sacrifice of a bad habit, say, can similarly be looked upon as an offering made to the fire of knowledge or wisdom. Let me now turn to equanimity. I have already told you that the man of wisdom can be distinguished by his equipoise. Ever calm and gentle, he cannot be easily ruffled. The same is in fact true of the karma yogi also. That is because he accepts every happening as ordained by God. Thus, his mental attitude slowly conditions him to an attitude of equanimity in its own way. Whereas the Sankhya Yogi acquires equipoise through inquiry and by overcoming delusion, the Karma Yogi allows equipoise to grow over him in due course by training himself to accept everything as a gift of God. At the end of it all, a true Karma Yogi is hardly distinguishable from a Sankhya Yogi. Now do you see that it is really not necessary to split hairs and make a big fuss about the difference. The paths may appear different, but the end result is the same. Just that some may find one path easier than the other, that is all. Yoga literally means union with God, and a yogi is one who becomes united with God. Now why is union with God so important? Because happiness is union with God, that is why. Maybe I should digress here a bit and say something about happiness. You will agree that no one in the world would want to be miserable even for a moment. Even a madman would not have such a desire. No one asks a person, why are you happy? On the other hand, if a person is very sad, everyone would try to find out why. The reason for this is simply that happiness is in fact the natural state of a human being. To be technically correct, I should say that bliss is the natural state of a human being. As a result of this, everyone, everywhere, is trying all the time to secure happiness in one manner or the other. But the trouble is, almost everyone is using the wrong method. Arjuna asks, Krishna, what do you mean by the wrong method? Krishna replies, Patience. I am coming precisely to that. You see, Arjuna, people are trying to find happiness in this world and that is what is wrong. A puzzled Arjuna asks, Wrong? Why is it wrong? Where else except in the world would one seek happiness? Krishna smiles and replies, You are puzzled because you think that the world is all that exists and that the world is the only place where happiness can be found. That is not correct. This world that you see around you is the external world 
but there is a much larger and a better world within you. That is the inner world. Real happiness exists in the inner world and not in the outer world as people imagine. Arjuna, the external world is a part of creation and therefore not permanent. As a result, the happiness that the external world can offer is also short-lived. It is transient. It is ephemeral. You may be happy for a while, but after that, pain would visit you for sure. This external world is what the wise refer to as a dual world. It is full of pairs of opposites, such as pain and pleasure, profit and loss, joy and misery, success and failure, and so on. These two members of a pair are like the two sides of a coin. They can never be separated. Can you ever have a coin with just one side? Arjuna asks, So, what exactly are you trying to convey? Krishna replies, Simple. You cannot have joy alone. If there is joy today, be sure you will experience sorrow tomorrow. As I often say, pleasure is an interval between two pains. Pleasure and pain form a package deal. If you pray for pleasure, it would be granted. But then you must be ready for the pain that would come along with it as a part of the inseparable package. Now do you understand what I am trying to tell you? Arjuna says slowly, Am I right in saying that the happiness that a transient world can offer is also short-lived? Krishna joyously replies, Great, you got it. The point, Arjuna, is that man is right in seeking happiness. In fact, he must, since bliss is his true nature. But he must go about it in the proper way. Bliss means eternal happiness and eternal happiness can be found only in the inner world and not in the outer world. The outer world is temporary and therefore the happiness it can offer would also be temporary. How can the temporary offer something that is permanent? Man is not able to understand this simple fact. Arjuna, true happiness is union with God. Now where do you find me? What is my permanent address? Your heart is my permanent residence. Look for me in your heart and there you will find me for sure. Become one with me there and you can enjoy bliss forever. Got it? In the external world, Happiness comes bundled with sorrow because it is a dual world. A dual world must have the pairs of opposites. But my world is not a dual world. It is a single world. There are no opposites. Bliss is thus all by itself and has no opposites. Let me explain the point. Suppose you eat a delicious mango 
that would certainly give you great joy. Fine. Now suppose, five years after that, you recall you're eating this mango. You would probably tell yourself, well, that was a very nice mango. That is all. You will not experience the sweet taste once again and feel equally joyous as you first did. With bliss, it is very different. Suppose you invite me to your house. I come and we spend a nice time together. Five years later, you think, Oh, how nice it would be if Krishna comes again and start recalling my earlier visit. In the process, you begin to experience the same joy that you did earlier. You can actually relive every second of the earlier experience and taste the same happiness. Now, do you get the significance of this? Since I live in your heart, you and I can be together for as long as you wish and in this way, you can be in bliss as long as you want. It is so very simple. It does not cost you a penny. No need to make travel plans, reservations and all that. Yet, people don't seem to want this bargain offer. Arjuna says, Krishna, you're making it all appear so very simple. But I don't think it is. To start with, when you come physically to my house, I know what being with you means. But how am I to be with you in the heart? That is not clear. Krishna replies, Arjuna, just take a lesson from what great devotees do. They like to hear people talking about me and that fills them with bliss. They imagine I am physically before them and sing for me. That fills them with bliss. They talk to me all the time and that too fills them with bliss. You can think of me or chant my name while doing your household work and that would fill you with bliss. You can be doing service and singing songs about me. That would fill you with bliss. There are a thousand different ways open to you and they can be followed in any place, any time, free of charge. Krishna asks Arjuna, Arjuna, are you now clear about the difference between bliss, which is divine happiness, and worldly happiness? Let me now get back to the yogi about whom I was telling you earlier. Man will ascend to the level of a yogi only when he practices firm mind and sense regulation. Anyone can become a yogi, but most people don't even try. Of the small number who try, most quit very quickly. This is most unfortunate. Arjuna, in all this, the mind plays a vital role. It can be your friend or your foe. If you turn the mind towards God, it is your friend. But if you turn it towards desires, it becomes your enemy. Let me give you a simple example. There is a lock and a key. You insert the key in the lock. If you turn it one way, 
The lock opens. If you turn the other way, it closes. The heart is the lock and the mind is the key. Got it? Arjuna asks. Okay, I want to become a yogi. I practice mind and sense control or regulation. Call it what you will. How do I know that I have become a yogi? Krishna replies, That is simple. Just do a self-check. Are you able to see a saint and sinner as alike? Can you regard gold and clay as being alike? If so, you have arrived. The yogic state must be demonstrated with a real-life test and not simulations. People do not quite understand the point. And so, let me tell you a story. You know Sage Narda, don't you? He is a great devotee of mine and keeps wandering over all the three worlds, singing my glory. One day, Narada came to me and said, Lord, I find that I am very short-tempered and I want to get rid of my tendency to flash easily into fits of anger. I said, Narada, that is very good. What exactly are you going to do? Narada replied, I am going to withdraw into the forest and do penance in solitude for ten years. To this I said, Is that so? Well, good luck. So Narada went away and ten years later he came back beaming. Prostrating before me, he said, Lord, you must congratulate me. I am now free from anger. I replied, Narada, I am very glad to hear that. But are you really sure that you have got rid of anger? In a pained voice, Narada said, Lord, how can you doubt me? I then said, Narada, it is not like that. Great men have tried earlier to rid themselves of anger and have not quite succeeded. Narada replied, They may have failed, but I am different. Appearing to be tired, I then said, well, that is what you say. Narada was now beginning to get impatient and show signs of anger. In a testy voice, he asked, Are you doubting my words? I replied mischievously, Narada, did I ever say I was doubting your words? I merely said that great men have failed. By now, Narada was furious. Raising his voice, he shouted, you might not have said so, but the fact is, you are doubting my words. Here I am, going round the three worlds, singing your glory all the time, and you don't have any faith in me at all. If you don't believe your devotee, whom else are you going to believe? While Narada was exploding in this manner, I remained silent, but was smiling all the time. After Narada had finished his outburst, I gently said, Did you see? You became angry. My dear Narada, for ten years you were all by yourself in the forest. Where was the opportunity there to test your calmness? If you say you have conquered anger, you must prove it here in this world. You must face situations that are likely to inflame you and show that you do not get angry despite the provocation. 
without a proper demonstration, how do you expect me to accept your claims? I narrated this story just to drive home the point that a true yogi is always a picture of equanimity and perfect composure and that can come only from strict disciplining of the senses and the mind. One who constantly thinks of God progressively acquires this attitude, of course, only over a long time. I would now like to tell you something about meditation, especially because yogis are supposed to be lost in meditation for long spells of time. The word meditation is greatly misunderstood besides being interpreted in a narrow sense. To begin with, I should mention that the textbook sannyasi or yogi, call him what you will, is one who has lived with himself and for God for years and years. He has not only practiced austerities but has gone through a long and elaborate routine of self-discipline involving many and progressive stages. It is like going up a ladder. Yogic meditation is the top of the ladder. I won't go into all those details now, but I should call your attention to three stages involved. They are concentration, contemplation and meditation. Concentration is something very common. Anybody who is serious about what he is doing necessarily concentrates a lot. You, for example, would totally concentrate on the target before shooting an arrow. Well, that is concentration. Concentration is an activity of the brain or the lower mind. With some practice, anyone can easily learn to concentrate. In fact, concentration is a must for all students. After concentration comes contemplation. This is a higher activity of the mind. Let us say a teacher has taught a lesson about plants. Later, when the student is revising the lesson, he could contemplate and wonder, how can the plant grow up without a father and mother? Or, are there an invisible father and an invisible mother? When I feel hungry, I ask my mother for food. Which mother gives food and water to the plant? Why has God made the plant so different? Incidentally, why has God created plants? That is contemplation. Coming now to meditation. In simple terms, it means filling the mind with God. When you contemplate, you start thinking of higher things. Going back to the case of the plant, meditation means thinking. God, how beautiful are the plants and the trees. Oh Krishna, when you were young, you used to rest under trees. How I wish I was one of those. I could have had your darshan for long periods of time. Krishna, why don't you become a tree and make me a creeper twining around you? Another example, you go to your garden to pluck a rose for God. When you pluck the flower, you must concentrate. Otherwise, you would get hurt by the thorns. Once you have plucked the flower, you hold it in your hands and admire its beauty and freshness. That is contemplation. You then say, God, this flower I am offering to you.
That is meditation. In simple terms, meditation is nothing but remembrance of the Lord. You can go about your normal household work, chanting my name all the time. That also is meditation. People do not realize this and imagine that meditation per force involves sitting in a yogic pose, closing your eyes and all that. That is only one way of meditating. There are actually many ways to meditate and the bottom line in all cases is remembrance of the Lord. That really is the important point. Arjuna, people are made differently and have differing attitudes and aptitudes. Take running for example. Some can run very fast but only over a short distance. Others have stamina and can run not very fast but over long distances. The long distance runner cannot do what the sprinter does and vice versa. You can see this in your own family. Your brother Bhima is hefty and therefore the mace is the ideal weapon for him. But for you, it is the bow and the arrow. In the same way, where meditation is concerned, people can adopt different techniques best suited to them. It is not the procedure but the spirit in which meditation is done that is important. Now, let me see, where am I? Oh yes, I have been telling you about the yogi, equanimity and all that. Now why on earth does the yogi go through so much trouble and such an elaborate discipline? He does all this in order to experience reality. Arjuna, people look at the world and imagine it is real. I am sorry to inform you that it is not at least not in the way people imagine. Truly speaking, reality is within you and what you see outside as the world is merely a reflection of what is within. Let me briefly illustrate my point before I get back to the yogi. You see a man and say that he is a bad fellow. You judge him to be bad because there is bad in you. Unless you know what is bad, how can you declare him to be bad? This is where the true yogi is different. The yogi identifies himself totally with God and sees God not only within himself but also everywhere, including in all beings. Since he sees only God everywhere, for him there are no bad people. Arjuna frowns and mumbles. Krishna, I am not getting the point. Can you please explain again? Krishna smiles and says, Yes, I shall. Firstly, understand that God is the only reality there is. That is because God is the only entity that is permanent. Next, reality is within for the simple reason that the heart is the permanent residence of God. Thirdly, God is everywhere because the outside is merely the reflection of the inside. So how can you ever say there is bad in the world? It is all the result of wrong vision. Arjuna protests and says, But Krishna, 
there is something very weird about your argument. If there is nothing bad in the universe, then why talk about good guys and bad guys? Why talk about dharma and adharma? And why this war in which you are asking me to fight? I am totally lost and back to square one. Krishna laughs and says, Arjuna, I can well understand your problem. In fact, this is the confusion that almost all people have. Just keep listening carefully and in due course your doubts would all vanish. Getting back to the subject of reality, in simple terms, it refers to the cosmic unity underlying diversity. He who sees me in everything and everything in me has understood reality. Such a one I shall not forsake. And when this person sheds his body, he would merge forever in me. Arjuna, the wise man always feels that he is in all, also that all are in him. This is a very important point. The truth is that man is a limb of society. Society is a limb of nature and nature is a limb of God. To give analogy, your nail is a part of your finger. The finger is a part of your hand. The hand is a part of your arm and the arm is a part of your whole body. Got it? Having identified himself with God in this manner, that is, as a limb of God, the wise man now sees everyone else also as a limb of God. In this way, he feels that all are part of God. Further, as he has identified himself with God, he now feels that all are a part of him. Coming now to the other aspect, namely, I am in all. The wise man sees it this way. Let us say you see a hungry, starving man. Feeling pity, you might give him some food. A wise man would do likewise, but he will not do it out of pity. He would say, I am hungry and let me give myself some food. This is the way he sees God and himself in all. Strange is it not? But all this comes from tight mental discipline. Arjuna now says, Krishna, you talk of regulating the mind and all that and make it sound so simple. But you're not aware that the mind is so difficult to control. It wanders so easily. How on earth is one to tame this wild beast? The mind is as difficult to control as the wind. And here you're telling me, Arjuna, it's all very simple and stuff like that. Krishna gently replies, Arjuna, I understand what you are saying, but don't you realize that you are quitting before even giving it a try? That is a sign of great weakness. True, the mind is fickle and all that, but people have tamed the mind before. If they can do it, why not you? People do all sorts of things, go through all sorts of difficulties and troubles in order to achieve power, acquire wealth and so on. 
man is ready to climb the highest mountains, go to the bottom of the ocean, etc., etc. But when it comes to God and experiencing inner reality, suddenly things become impossible. No, Arjuna, it is not impossible. The fact is that people do not want such things. There is not enough yearning for God. If the hunger is there, the impossible would immediately become possible. Arjuna takes in all this and stroking his chin slowly says, Okay, you have a point there. Let me now ask you something else. Let us say there is a person who has tried very hard to do all the things you are now recommending but has not quite made it during his lifetime. Does that mean all his life ends up as a big waste? Krishna replies, No, not really. Spiritual evolution is a slow process involving successive stages of refinement. Thus, if the Jivatma does not get purified enough in one birth, it gets another chance to improve further. Thus, the person you are talking about would be born again and destiny would place him in a situation where he can start from where he left off earlier. Thus, going through many life cycles, he slowly advances. Eventually, he becomes sufficiently refined to achieve the status of a yogi. Every birth is a fresh chance, but it can also be squandered if one is not careful. In a manner of speaking, it is all like the familiar game of snakes and ladders. Yogis come in different types. The type of yogi I like best is one who worships me with faith and is always thinking of me. If you have total faith, you do not have to worry about achieving 100% purity. When you have earned enough deservedness, I shall, out of compassion, extend my hand and pull you to me. Of this you can be sure.